Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Tell me about a time that you have done something you shouldn't have done. Tell me about a time you maybe talked to a suppressive person. Tell me about a time you've done this and just this barrage of questions. This is torturous to me while I'm uh, while I have this pounding headache. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series. I'm Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week we are continuing a feature we call Return to the Stoop, in which we feature a memorable Stoop story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. Before we get started, we want to thank Park School of Baltimore, an independent co-ed, non-denominational school in North Baltimore, K-12. through Um, They've been a great sponsor of the podcast. So the person that we are returning to this week is none other than Prescott Gaylord, who um, is a friend of ours and a friend of Stoops. And you work in sustainability for corporate real estate and you live in Singapore. But this story is from a 2012 Stoops show called Believe It or Not, stories about Finding and Losing Faith. Wow, 2012. Wasn't that crazy? Was it? It's been a long time. Yeah. Well, anyway, hello, everybody. <laughs> let's, let's, let's listen to the story. So I've always wondered where the line was in what Jessica would not say to an audience. <laughs> I'm glad I was here to witness it. Just talking about Laura's liposuction apparently is okay, which was a really difficult time in her life. But don't ask an audience if they believe in God or not. Apparently, that's, that's over the line. That's, that's crossing that line. I can't do that. So, so I'm, I feel privileged to witness that. Uh, so this is, uh, this is kind of a difficult story. Uh, but I'm going to get through it. Uh, so don't worry, I'll lead you through it. I'm here for you. Uh, so it... Uh, there's this awesome YouTube video that you should definitely check out. Uh, that Probably a lot of you have seen it because it touched off this great controversy. It's Tom Cruise uh, talking to like internal Scientology people, and he's, uh, it wasn't intended to leak out, uh, which was the controversy apparently. And he's saying things that don't really – he's saying English words, but they don't really make any sense uh, if put together. Uh, so, you know, he's saying things like, you know, I, I feel a privilege. Like, I'm in ethics, so people are out ethics. I confront them, and I feel a privilege to do that, you know. This one guy said to me one time, are you an SP or have you met an SP? And I'm like, Pah! Like, they don't make any sense. <laughs> but I, I understand every word he said, and I understand everything he was saying. Because from the time I was three to the time I was 14, I was a Scientology kid. And I'm going to use some of this language, because uh, I have to, to tell this story. I'm going to do my best to define it along the way. And uh, being a Scientology kid is kind of a misnomer anyway, because uh, they don't really have the concept of kids. Uh, f- we're millions and billions of year old beings, right? So we uh, pick up and drop bodies in their language. We're born and we die and to, to give ourselves the experiences of that lifetime. 
So uh, what that means is uh, there's a lot of things, uh, which first of all, it's very comforting to a kid to not have the concept of death uh, as, as we might know it. Uh, it's kind of forever, which is very nice, uh, but it also means there's some responsibilities and decisions and stuff that you're treated like an adult, uh, and you have to make those decisions, and uh, you can do adult things, you, you do these things. Um, when I was a kid, I had these terrible, terrible headaches, just awful, maybe migraines, I don't know, because uh, we didn't really go to doctors, and I wasn't allowed to take medicine, so I never took a pill for those headaches. I just had to deal with it. So, I, you know, so I'm nine, and I, uh, I, I tell uh, these people that I have a headache and get into auditing. So uh, I go into auditing. I'll get there. And uh, so I sit at a table on one side, and the auditor sits on another side. And uh, while my head is pounding, it's just this terrible, terrible pain, um, I'm, I get a barrage of questions about it. And the questions are uh, kind of gibberish in this English language. You know, tell me about a time you have had a secret you shouldn't have had. Tell me, they're very paranoid, too, by the way. Tell me, in, in case you haven't heard. <laughs> tell me about a time that you, uh, that you have done something you shouldn't have done. Tell me about a time you maybe talked to a suppressive person. Tell me about a time you've done this. And just this barrage of questions, which this is torturous. To me, while I'm uh, while I have this pounding headache, and you know, so, but then they they just keep coming, you know, to tell me about a time you've done this, and I I know what there's what they mean, like I know what Tom Cruise is saying. Uh, it means you're sick and injured for one of two reasons, really. One reason is if you've done something horrible in the world or bad in the world, and you and the universe are bringing this on yourself as your own punishment, kind of uh, their version of karma. Or you're talking to these very bad people, which they call suppressive people, and, and you are what they call PTS, a potential trouble source. That actually wasn't a joke. That's what they call it. Um, so they're, you know, those are the special bad people. Or, not that this is really or, but special bad people are also people who used to be in the church and are no longer in the church. They don't like those people either. And you have to disconnect from those people. There's a policy of disconnection, which they deny, but it's there. You need to trust me on that. Um, so they, the barrage of questions, have you done this? Tell me about a time you've done that. There's oh, a little hit on the e-meter. You may, oh, so there's an e-meter. <laughs> I'm not making this up either. So the auditing takes place. I'm holding uh, little cans that fit in my, metal cans that fit in my nine-year-old hands, and they're connected with alligator clips to these little wires that connect to this box filled with switches and, and a needle and kind of dials and stuff, which, by the way, is an awesome toy for a kid. This, it's really awesome. Um, and so they play with this. To, and they claim really hard this is not a lie detector. This is not a lie detector. But I really noticed even at nine, they're using it a lot for this reason. Uh, they're, they're liars. <laughs> Turn that around. You pick the key. So, so I, at nine, uh, while my head is just pounding and pounding and pounding and they're asking me these questions tell me about this time and I know it means why and I have these again and again which means I'm just this horrible person why am I this horrible person and I relax my breathing and I bury the pain and I bury the pain and I 
hear voices in music in my head. <laughs> and I use that to soothe myself. And I pretend to be happy for a moment, and I think of something, whatever it was. Yes, I probably thought about doing a bad thing to someone. Thought about being mean to my sister. I thought about whatever this is. Wow, my headache's gone. That's amazing. You guys are smart. I'm good. This, let's call this a win. And I bury this pain, and I never tell them again when I have a headache. Uh, and so I just keep burying this pain. And this is actually a pretty good coping mechanism for a while. But you have to keep it up, uh, including further that year I was out screwing around doing flips on the lawn, and I broke my foot and I don't tell anybody. And I, until very recently, never told anybody. And so I learned to bury the pain, which is hard when you have to walk on it. You learn to read a lot, take that up as a hobby. Just, and I just don't tell anybody. And I only, like, I'm pretty sure I broke it, but I never got an x-ray or something, right? But so it's, so for the better part of a year, I just learned to walk slowly and bury the pain. And this coping mechanism is pretty good. But later, um, when I am 11, my parents divorce. And uh, so I'm pretty good at burying pain at this point, so I can get through this okay. Um, so it's fine until my father stops coming. And he's, uh, he just doesn't come anymore. And so they now talk about him, the Scientology people talk about him as he's now a suppressive person. And I know what they're saying, just like I know what Tom Cruise is saying. And uh, they never directly tell me I need to make a decision, but I know what they're saying with a hundred different pieces of communication. Like, we would never tell you to not see your father, but we're worried about you. We're worried about your health. We're worried about you. And, and I know, and now you know what they're saying. They are saying, if I see my father... I will become sick and pain and a bad person and and can continue to just degenerate. And I really wish this was the point in my story where I make a stand and lose my faith. <laughs> but it's not. I choose when I'm 11 to estrange myself from my father. And I bury the pain. And several years later, my mother and father stopped going without really an explanation. Just, I mean, things were getting weird at the church as, as opposed to what they were before. <laughs> Weir, weirder. Things weren't going well. Um, and they stopped going. Uh, they didn't really stop believing all the things. Uh, but I get to take my first Advil, which is a wonderful piece of human genius. <laughs> they make a pill that makes a headache go away. And man, that first Advil was just so wonderful, making that headache go away. I'm, I'm chasing that dragon for a long time. Man. But I don't really reestablish a relationship with my father. This is all still buried, right? And I carry this guilt. And I carried this guilt until very recently. 25 years of this guilt that's buried. But I 
I see him around every once in a while, but it's awkward conversations, you know, and not really a reestablishment. And I just, every once in a while, and for the past 25 years, I try to have this conversation with him, right? Of this, I did this thing and I'm sorry. And of course, he brushes it off. He's like, it's not your fault. You were a kid and, and you were you were there. It was it was your belief system. It's never really been uh, a good conversation to have. Uh, I've a lot of a lot of hard time forgiving these people. A lot, of, very hard time forgiving myself for it. It's just you know, bury the pain, bury the pain. So recently, I decided to uh, to have this out to reconnect with my father for this. Um, and uh, he recently had his uh, cancerous prostate removed. So I went to see him uh, to make sure it was okay. He's, he's remarkably good. Uh, he was able to be up and around a little bit, and I, I talked with him. He's different this time, though. I wouldn't let myself bury the pain. <sighs> I just... I lived in the pain, it was wonderful. I just told him that I'm sorry. And I miss him. And I love him. And he accepted it. And he told me stories about when I was a kid and he let himself be hurt and said he knew what I was going through. It was his belief system for a while, too, and he understood. And so we sat and we cried a lot. And uh, we laughed a lot. And uh, I feel like this was my, this was my stand. I realized I didn't need to confront these people and have it out. I just needed to let them go. And be okay. Because we're Okay. So I really feel like this weekend with my dad was finding some faith. And faith in myself. And faith in him. And faith in the survivability of the human spirit. And unconditional love. Which we have. Okay, before we get into this juicy discussion with Prescott, we want to thank Golden West, a great sponsor of the Soup Podcast, and they're open, and they've got tables outside, and they've got their takeout windows, so give them a visit on the avenue. We want to thank Baltimore Magazine. You can find them on the newsstand and at baltimoremagazine.com. Okay. Oh, I am so happy Golden West is still around. Yes! Yes! I I live in Singapore, and I, I read... Baltimore news from time to time and I, I get very sad when various Baltimore places I love uh, no longer exist. So thank you for that little bit of news that Golden West is still there and going strong. Yeah, they're, yes. they're doing a great job. So, pivoted very well. <laughs> so you mentioned before this, you know, we played the story that, wow, this was from 2012. So that's eight years ago. And I guess I'm assuming you haven't listened to the story in eight years. Is that right? 
That is right. I, I had not listened to the story in eight years. I actually listened to the other story that I had done for the stoop, which is about yes. being naked. So that, that was, was awesome. a much easier, <laughs> easier listening. Naked, yeah. naked at Christmas. I love that story. I love that story. But this story I love too, but you're right. This story, it's, it's hard. It's, this is a very different kind of story. What was it like to hear it after eight years? Like what, just tell us like, what what did what thoughts what feelings anything well it was a it was hard honestly it's hard to listen to that story i definitely have a bit of different feelings about all of the you know the the entirety of the story um some things have not changed the, the i clearly opened with a little bit of I, well, I noticed something clearly before i went on and i started harassing jessica immediately <laughs> <laughs> and I that that was clearly done to break the to break the tension in my own head to try yeah. to open with some so a little bit of comedy to try and uh, ease myself in that yeah, I pretend that's for the audience but I don't think it was that was for me I'm trying to I'm trying to make Feel myself less there. nervous yeah 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 I definitely felt that listening to it I felt like you were relieving the tension for yourself even more than for the audience. You know, yeah, yeah. Do I you did remember that throughout. That, yeah, that was your child. That was a coping mechanism. Clearly, that's how. Which, which is pretty. I mean, that's how a lot of us develop a sense of humor, right? We yeah. do When we're kids, if there's hard things, we develop a sense of humor to get out of tricky situations or relieve tension with ourselves. So, thank God for uh, weird childhoods. Otherwise, we would never have any good comedians. <laughs> well, and you see, like listening to the story, the 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 sort of using comedy or being funny it falls away as the story gains its own life and you are in it and you're trusting it and it's um you've got i think you know the audience is on your side and all that at least that's what it felt like listening to it again i i think that's right yeah it seemed clear to me i after a while i started to i started to drop the comic interludes um, although I enjoyed them, they're they're the easiest parts for me to listen to. Yeah, you know it's so full of emotion. Like it was, it was, and and you know that I think that's really powerful for an audience to be witness to. That how hard it was for you to tell this story is such it's such evidence. It's such a signal of how you know how hard these experiences were. It doesn't feel like um, it was a good story in spite of, you know, the difficulty you had in telling it. It felt like that was part of the meaning of the story was look how hard it is all these years later still. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, so I think if I told the story now, I would not have the same trouble telling it. At mm -hmm. that time, that time I was new at telling this part of my life. I didn't, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you guys probably know, like you had, uh, you had clues into, into kind of this part of my life, but it's not something I talk about. I just don't like to talk about it a lot. Yeah. Um, at that time, well, I, I almost never talked about it. It's, well, and you said, you said in the story that when you talked about having the headache, you said, you know, I've, this is only like the, I don't think I, I never told him and this is like the first or second time I'm talking about this. it was yeah it was about the the foot injury yeah oh, about the foot injury yeah. yeah 
Yeah, the foot injury was a weird thing to listen to this time as well, because the, the weird thing about the foot injury is I had, a, I had that foot injury, but I, I retell it in the story very distinctly as if I had broken my foot. And I don't really know, of course. Like, how would I know? I know I hurt my foot and it hurt for a long time and I had to cover up the fact that I, my, I had injured my foot. That's really the, the facts of the story, yeah. of that piece of the story anyway. And I may have broken it. I don't know. I don't know if you can go back and tell because I was young enough where we heal really well. So, but, so that was one interesting part of it, which is I'm very, uh, <laughs> as some of you know, I'm very into getting facts correct uh, when, when things are told and making sure they're right. And I actually, you know, I don't know that that even lived up to my standards. And would you say that you were you were very much like you pressed hard to get at truth and data and facts because you grew up in a world in which that just was not a currency? Well, that's it. There was a pseudo. It was a pseudoscience, you know. Yeah, there was a pseudoscience to it, and it is, uh, and it was a you know I lived in a crazy town world where the the currency was was this other thing. I don't even know what to call it, but you're right. The, the, the currency was this other kind of political capital that people have inside, you know, some religions or some cults or something. And yes, you know, I think so, but I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know why I have a, a fetish for facts and truth because a lot of people do um, and they don't have this type of background, but it, it certainly is, I believe it certainly is part of why I, I, uh, I will check stories. It, it, makes, it makes me kind of an ass, to be honest, in a lot of situations. I love so it, I, though. I love it about you. You hold me, you hold those around you accountable. It's a good way to be. It really is. Um, and it's admirable. And you have been, like, unwavering in that. It's, yeah. well, well, thanks. But, yeah, but I guess I don't know why. Like, probably it's because it was, I, it was, it's something I missed from my childhood, but well, I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, I, I mean, there was no existence of objective knowledge in your childhood. No, and it was a slow realization that this is true, although it's patently obvious these days, um, that this is true in the greater world. There yeah. is so much of our society where objective truth is not uh, is not the main currency. I think that's actually yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah. If you say something loud enough or often enough, for for some reason, you we believe that makes it true, and that's a bizarre to me. This is a bizarre concept, but one in which I grew up. Yeah, and I I mean to me it makes sense that you would having suffered at the hands of a non-objective truth, right? And having no exposure to, say, going to like a medical doctor or an outside figure that was a neutral person who was gonna say, look at a foot and x-ray it. Like you had no opportunity for just a factual, un I don't wanna say unbiased, but uninterested, disinterested truth to come to you about anything. And and that caused pain and that caused suffering. And Did you? Um, did you go to like a, a public school? I don't know if I ever asked you that, or was it like, a, was it a Scientology educational setting? No, I went to a public school. It was, wow. uh, yeah, you just separated kind of your lives that way. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, the compartmentalization and. 
Yeah, it know? was. And when people found out, it was actually bad. So it's pretty easy for a kid to figure out uh, that compartmentalization. So, because I, I went to school in a very uh, you know, high percentage religious Christian rural area. So oh, it was, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and even back, so back then it was, it was known, you know, what Scientology was, or was it, you would say it and people would be like, I don't know what that is. And then you would describe it. And then that's when the, you felt like there was judgment or, cause I don't know uh, if I would have known what it was in the like early eighties as a child, you know, hearing about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good point. I, I don't really remember all of the responses, but both of those, there's certainly a lot of, no one knew what it was. And there's, uh, and to kids, the, it, it doesn't matter that they understand what it is. They, they yeah. might understand that you're not Christian. Yeah. In, yeah. In that context. yeah. Or they get from their parents, like there's something weird or not kosher going on there, you know, like just, they just need the tiniest bit of that <laughs> to, to what march on. Yeah. Thinking about kids after you left Scientology and you just started to, you know, essentially assemble your own worldview based on data and facts and evidence, how did you start to look at children differently, given that you start the story by saying that there, there really is no, there's no concept of a child in Scientology because everyone is a, a you know, what is it, million? Pick up a body. Yeah, yes. Are an age, ageless being kind of. Yeah, that we're all sort of the same age. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think my, my views on children changed much. Um, as we, you know, as it's like, uh, I guess it's like believing in Santa Claus and then not believing in Santa Claus. Yeah. It's, you don't, you don't look at elves differently, but you just know that these, like you can tell like kids, when they when they start to not believe in Santa Claus anymore, like they had never seen Santa Claus. So like, it's pretty easy, like, oh, well, that makes that checks out now. So it was a little bit like that, in that, that I had been observing the world around me for the entire time. And it's not like as a kid, you can't observe and you don't pick things up. We did. So there was some, so there's some part of it where it, it's pretty easy to see like some of these things are not true. There's this, there's this concept in Scientology called postulation. Uh, postulating, I know, is it's one of those words that they've taken to mean something else that I talk about. And what it means is you can think something into existence, essentially. And learning that as a kid is, is very powerful, right? Like, hey, you can think something into existence. Yeah. There's, there's whole, um, I mean, there's whole, uh, there's whole books and you know, motivational speakers who essentially are teaching the same thing, honestly. But uh, so, and that's what, that's what they, they mostly referred to it as that kind of thing is like this, this uh, good things in your life, you know, you just think them into existence, but they, they took it to an extreme where they literally meant it. Like I could, I could think of a gold bar theoretically and a gold bar would somehow uh, materialize. So even as a kid, you can kind of see that that's not possible. And so the, as people are explaining it to you, it's pretty easy to see like something's wrong with this, but the adults all believe it. So I, I, I'm going to go along with it for a bit. Right. So and you, like, yeah. isn't it pretty to think, you know, it's a lovely thing to think, you know, in a way, except the flip side is if you think something bad, 
like you're mad at someone, then you could actually kill them with your brain, right? I mean, that's the flip side of that power. Wow, Laura, my brain never went there. Holy cow. Oh. Well, that's I'm just saying. Dark. So dark, have, Laura, what the hell? Listen. The hell is the matter with you? <laughs> kids, you know, kids have that magical thinking anyway, even if they're not in Scientology where they, you know, they can think they're responsible for their parents' divorce or they can think like a lot of times when bad things happen, they can assume some kind of responsibility in a way, which is to assume power, um, which is sort of a little bit what you're talking about. Um, I, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think you're right. You, you, you can go into those dark thoughts. Weirdly, that's not where my brain went. I'll bet a lot of kids in my situation did, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I don't know if I would then. I just, I am, I would now. I would be like, I don't want that power. Too much power. <laughs> I might use it wrong, might hurt somebody. Um, but you know, it does make me wonder, I mean, I, I wanna, I definitely wanna talk about what I feel like is the biggest source of grief for you in this story, which is, you know, your, your in your words, your decision, although what we, could, we could argue whether it was actually a decision for a young kid to make, not to see your father after he had been excommunicated you know, from the community and that you felt so much guilt and shame about that and so much anger that you were put in that situation. And I wonder, you know, when you, when you tell this story, you recently or fairly recently visited with your father and gotten a little bit, uh, not closure, but a little bit more relief or a little bit of movement on some of those feelings and I'm wondering in these eight years since has that what has what if anything has happened or where is your head and heart on that stuff I speak to my father weekly mm. and we we are very much in each other's lives now and it was kind of this, uh, this blessing of that time in my life, uh, apparently eight years ago, where I started this kind of conscious effort to build some relationships. And this was one that was important to me. What, where my head is at on, on that thing you describe, and I think you correctly describe it as kind of the biggest source of pain, um, is, is that I, I actually still feel that way. I still feel guilty about that decision my eyes are fairly open, I think, on all of the context. Yeah. Um, on whether it was, you know, all of the all of these elements and forces that were part of my decision. But I mean, I know what I know, and I remember what I remember, and it was a decision. And it, I understand I was a kid, but I made the decision, and it made my life a little easier hmm. in the situation I was in. And I did ah. that on purpose. And also, my siblings didn't. So oh, interesting. It, yeah, and they, they they kind of suffered through their lives being a little bit more difficult around the the you know the the Scientology people. Because and your so, father was a was a suppressive person. Exactly. So they, so they were at risk for so many more negative, so much more negativity. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. They they were at risk for the negativity, and I. Uh, escaped some of that by by making this decision. And do you know, I'm just, do you know if they had gone through some of the same things you had with like 
with say the headache or with a foot? Do you think they'd had similar experience that would put them in a position of like needing needing things to go a little easier rather than harder? You know, I don't know. I've I've talked to them both about it uh, a bit, but not a lot. Um, you know, I think so before that time in my life around the time I told this story, I, I, I would not have been able to speak to them about it very much. So, and I think they've been in that place for, for a while too. And I, I'm trying to respect it. Meaning I don't, uh, I've tried to talk to them and it doesn't, it doesn't go well. They're the, they don't want to talk about it so much either. Yeah. Um, I think that time might be different now. I, in, in talking to my dad, I, uh, my sister who lives near him does things like he's having health problems. So like she drives him to very far away doctor's appointments and, and helps out when she can. So it's, she's they're They're in each other's lives a bit. Um, but she's, she has a different feeling about it. Uh, mostly because she didn't make the decision I made and she, and you know, my dad, after a while, like didn't reach back out to me. So we were estranged for a while. Yeah. And that's a big deal to my sister because she didn't make the same decision. And she, she feels like he kind of stopped, uh, he stopped reaching out and he stopped trying to, to keep the lines of communication open. So we have very different experiences and very different feelings about the whole thing. Um, and so it, it, which is fine. I, I kind of like that the, the experiences are different. Um, but in talking about it, I, I, I guess we have to kind of wait until each other is ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, um, do you, do you ever feel any, uh, obligation to talk about your experience on a more kind of public level to help others who are still entrenched in it? Or do you feel like that's, you know, I mean, I, that's, maybe that's not the best way of framing it, but do you know what I mean? Like, do, do you keep up at all with what's happening nationally, globally within, you know, the church or, or anything like that? or do you feel completely like that's just a, that's a, a thing of the past. It's not a part of you. No, I don't feel any obligation to mostly because I don't think I, I can be of much use to people. I, I think I can probably be of some use and comfort to people who, who had similar situations and are out and trying to collect thoughts and, and deal with feelings of guilt and estrangement. I think I can probably be of some help there, but I don't know how large that population is, and I don't know how to I don't know how to get in front of them. And there's there's people that this story doesn't paint well. And I while I while I'm committed to the facts, as we say, and I, I'm not willing to pull the punches of reality, you know, I don't have any reason to kind of push the stories of people who did things that don't look good, you know, this, that far ago, that, you know, this far in the future, I don't need to keep telling the stories of things they did that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't talked about your mother at all. Where, where are you with her on all of this? Um, 
Yeah, so I mean, that's that's essentially what I was talking about, uh, which is, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to talk about things that I, I have issues with that my, specifically my mother did at that time, um, kind of as, as part of being in Scientology. So I guess I just don't want to talk about it much. Um, I'm fine with my mother. Uh, yeah. We have a perfectly good relationship at this point. Yeah, yeah. Is there is there any part of you that, or do you miss anything about that world? Interesting. Well, sure. The um, no, I don't miss anything about the world, but there definitely are good things that I can try and be grateful for about that world. So it it is a like any small group like that. Like it is a community and a community and, and people who, who kind of feel like they have your back and, and you can hang out with uh, is nice. And sort of like improv. Yeah, yeah. It would be terrible if, a, if an organization that you were part of that was tight-knit like kind of fell apart for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, you know, that you sought and thrived in a community like that makes sense, you know, that that would be a positive thing that you were familiar with and would want in your life, you know? Yeah. Well, also there's, there's these wonderful beliefs that they have that are comforting and positive. And, you know, it was a good comfort for a while to have them. Um, I certainly don't miss them and I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and recreate that for another kid, for example, but it was, you know, the, the feelings of that you have to help take care of people in hard situations. They have the, you know, it's not all Xenu and spaceships and uh, hydrogen bombs, you know, it's that there's, there's have other pieces of their story and their teachings that are motherhood and apple pie. You know, it's the whole, they, they took it to weird extremes in that if, if things aren't going well, that means you're, you're a terrible person. But the, at the base of that teaching is, is, you know, be good to people, be good to yourself, you know, help take care of people. Um, and don't, you know, don't keep too many secrets from each other, be open, be honest and communicate well, like those are all pretty good things. And so that's why it's kind of nice to be in a community where people help to reinforce in each other, uh, you know, having good ethics, being good people. So that's kind of nice. Um, so, you know, if they had left it there, it, it might be a perfectly fine thing. Yeah. I'm so struck in the story, listening to it again, that moment where you take an Advil for the first time. And I'm wondering what your relationship is to medicine now. And if you ever learn, like if those headaches continued and if you learned what the source of them were, if we're going to agree that it's not because you're a bad person. Um, yeah, I think we can agree. I don't get headaches because I'm a bad person. Um, <laughs> Only me and Jessica do, but, um, but um, like, did you ever learn intellectual, like physiological, did they continue? Did you learn why? And what is like, what, do you have any, I don't know, odd relationship with taking medicine now or Western medicine, given how you were raised? 
Um, yeah, probably. It, it's it's more like a second thought, though. It's not like it affects my behavior much. Yeah. Uh, I do get headaches still. I tend to get headaches when the pressure changes, in the, the climactic pressure changes, um, especially if I haven't had enough sleep. This, which is a perfectly normal thing, right? Like a lot yeah. of people have this. It's that I have the old man's, you know, trick knee, except it's my head. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not, and it's not every time the pressure shifts. It's not every time. It's just every once in a while. And I, I just weirdly have cor- correlated this thing. Be like, oh, that's interesting. When high pressure systems come in, I tend to, I tend to get headaches. Um, I, I probably take more Advil than I should. Hmm. Not, uh, not enough to make an ulcer, I think. But, uh, you know, I'm very quick to it. Like, oh, my head hurts a little bit. Advil, done. Yeah. I'm taking it. So it's a, which is a bizarre reaction. It's like, you can't stop me. I have my big old bottle of Advil, which is weird. In Singapore, they don't sell it. I have to, <laughs> have to bring it in in my luggage. Wow. Do, do people in Singapore not get headaches? They, they, I don't know why they don't take Advil. They have uh, their version of aspirin. They have the other thing, just Advil, just ibuprofen is not really a thing here. Maybe it's prescription. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that you are a person, you know, that doesn't like to, or as when I knew you, you lived in Baltimore, you were not big into taking any sort of drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Like you would have an occasional drink, but like, you know, you are a person who likes to kind of stay in your mind as, as is. That's my impression of you. Yeah. uh, I'm, yeah, it, it's true. I, uh, I, I'm not a big drug taker. I am not a big drinker. I, I drink socially and I, I drink for fun. Um, maybe more now than before. No, probably not. It's expensive here. Um, yeah, that's probably true. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I think I was always a bit like that. And I, I don't think it was, it's related I mean, it is kind of, if you want to get into it, I know we don't have a lot of time, but it is probably the big missing piece of the story as I listened to it. I thought I had told this part, but I did not. Uh, what what prompted, in that story, what prompted when I say, yo, recently I, I decided to go see my father and, and make these changes. And what kind of allowed me to tell the story in the first place? I think I never would have told that story to you all if I had not been part of that Hopkins study. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. I, 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 I knew as soon as Jessica said drugs, I was like, ah, oh, no, he's, he's definitely tripped balls. So no, he's fine. <laughs> well, t- um, so tell our listeners about the Hopkins study. So what do you, could you mind? What is, what are you referring to? Well, I'll sum it up. I was a, I was a volunteer in the in one of the studies recently made a, a bit famous by the how to change your mind book from michael pollan but the one of the studies on psilocybin which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms so my my tripping balls as laura puts it was done in a controlled environment with lab grade psilocybin with postdocs watching me um and it was quite a wonderful experience uh to have that experience and i basically had conversations in my mind while I was tripping balls and uh, basically wanted to rekindle some of these relationships. 
and uh, kind of allowed myself to access a lot of this, these memories and allowed myself to access feelings about it and telling myself that they were okay, which allowed me to do those two things. One is to tell the story for you and, and the other is to, to basically reach out without judgment to all of these other people and, and have these conversations about it. So awesome. So that's such a, that's such a transformation to be able to make that quickly. Cause normally that in therapy, that would take years. Yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, and that was what was so great about that study is that you had all the counseling beforehand. So you could set your, you could kind of set your intention and really, you know, to the degree that you had some, some, you know, volition while you were under the influence, you could really work on stuff that had been stuck, you know? Yeah. But I had any, any intention I said had nothing to do with what happened. Yeah. I don't know about anybody else, but it was, I got, any of my intentions were largely irrelevant. It was all yeah. just stuff that had to happen down in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, same for me. Um, yeah. So it's so good to talk to you. I guess we would ask you at this moment, is there anything else you'd like to share um, about the experience of telling the story, the experience of listening to it after all these years? Um, you know, anything, really any thoughts it brings up? Um, I mean, no, I don't have any things I want to tell anybody. The, the act of listening to it was quite interesting. I think the, the story doesn't have the same power over me as it did then. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that comes from processing it then and processing it in the time between then and now kind of those active measures I've taken to, to try to, you know, rebuild some relationships. Um, yeah. Which yeah. So I think if I told it today, for example, I, I think it wouldn't be as difficult. I think I could just kind of lay it out a little bit better, which will be um, sad for the comedy of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fascinating. Yeah. Because like, yeah, you've had all this movement, you've had this sort of, you know, time and softening and all this other stuff. And so yeah, to tell the same story, to do to sort of work with the same material all these years later, I think that's a really excellent thing that you wouldn't tell it the same way that there's been movement and that, you know, it's power over you is less absolute and and more in your in sort of in your control than being controlled by it and you know that's the brilliant thing that i think about getting stuff out whether it's at the stoop or in therapy or whatever is like you can kind of step out of the prison of the past and i don't know feel a little bit freer from it yeah totally i think that's right i guess i feel freer from it or more the way i would put it is i feel normal about it now yeah. Uh, whereas I didn't feel free before it was, I was, I was definitely letting it kind of control. Yeah. And for, I mean, I think for an audience to be a witness at a moment where you're on that, like you're wrestling with it still, you're on that path, you're not there yet, but that experience of being with someone who's in that moment wrestling, that is such a profound experience for people. And it's so relatable. Like everyone has, Everyone has something like that. Um, 
So yeah, I, I yeah. So the brilliant. follow up, I, the follow up, I will say, and I'll kind of tie it up here is after that story, I got a lot of people, including strangers, who found me, who who didn't really want to do anything. I could tell they might be wrestling with anything, but they just kind of wanted to show compassion. And, and some of them wanted a little bit of compassion to them. Like a lot of people have difficult childhoods that were weird for a variety yeah. of reasons. And a whole lot of people who heard that story, I mean, that, I don't remember where it was. It was in a, it was in a large auditorium. There were a lot of people who heard that story live. Yeah, it was at Center Stage, so and it was sold out. So it was uh, sold out Center Stage. Seven, right, there yeah. we go. Six, yeah, so six hundred people or something, and then yeah. we played it on the podcast and stuff. So yeah, I mean, yeah. So a lot of people reached out to me, so and so I had some interesting conversations with people back then. I, I don't remember a lot of the specifics, but I do remember there was a, a lot of people touching base who just wanted to just like say like, look, this moved me in some way. And, uh, and it was good to be a part of it. So I, I'm grateful for that. And, and hopefully it was a positive experience for people listening to it as well. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we, we're very grateful that you came back on to talk about it. And, um, and we are grateful that you took the risk. It was a risk with us uh, eight years ago and, and shared it. Um, and yeah, thank you, Prescott. It's really wonderful to talk to you and, and listen to the story again. And just, you know, this, this is, this is a story where the stakes were very high and that is really, I, like, I just keep saying it's a privilege to be part of that. So thank you. Well, well, thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Thank you for having such a wonderful series where people can share their stories. Everybody has a story. Oh, What's yeah, yours? That's our, that's our slogan. Before we get out of here, we want to thank the wine source on Elm Avenue in Hamden. Oh, yay. They're still there. The they're wine source. There. Well done, the wine <laughs> source. Hooray. Awesome. I think they're doing very well. Yeah, been a <laughs> lot. Oh, they've been getting people through. Um, yeah. We want to thank Maureen Harvey, who produces the podcast. And we want to let you know that on Tuesday, which is tomorrow at 7 p.m., <laughs> um, we have our first show of the 2020-21 season, which is called Of Substance, stories about our complicated relationships with drugs and alcohol. And it's going to be live broadcast from the Creative Alliance here in Baltimore. And you can watch it free on YouTube Live or Facebook Live. Or I guess you could do both if you want to be fancy. Um, and you can get those links by going to our website, soupstorytelling.com. So that's Tuesday at 7 p.m. of Substance. And check out our website to get the links to watch the show free. All right. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you next week. Alrighty, bye-bye. Bye. Another day. -bye. Bye.